Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, November 17th, 2022, we discuss recent DOJ policy for charging cases under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Is it fair or foul? My name is Kayla Kleiss, and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call, as the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. In the interest of time, I'll keep my introductions of our speakers brief, but if you'd like to know more, you can access their full bios at fedsoc.org. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Professor Oren Kerr, who is a law professor at the University of California's Berkeley School of Law. He specializes in criminal procedure and computer crime law, and he's also taught courses on criminal law, evidence, and professional responsibility. Additionally, he is a formal trial attorney in the Criminal Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. Next, we have Professor Michael Levy, who is an adjunct professor of law at Penn Carey Law School at the University of Pennsylvania. Before coming to Penn Carey, Mr. Levy was an assistant United States attorney in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania for more than 37 years. And from September 2001 to September 2017, he was the Chief of Computer Crimes at the United States Attorney's Office. Lastly, we have as our moderator, John Richter, who is a trial and investigations partner at King and Spalding in the Special Matters and Investigations Practice Group. Mr. Richter previously served as Acting Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Criminal Division at the U.S. Department of Justice and as the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Oklahoma. One final note, um, as we go through the webinar, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Mr. Richter, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, and uh, good afternoon to everyone. Um, the, today, we're going to be covering uh, an, an important policy uh, pronouncement from the Department of Justice involving the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And the Justice Department recently announced a revised internal policy for charging cases um, that revises policy that was originally promulgated in 2014. Um, the policy was issued in the wake of a Supreme Court case called United States versus Van Buren, which held that the C Computer Fraud uh, and Abuse Act ex exceeds authorized access provision, does not cover those who have improper motives for obtaining information that is otherwise available to them. Additionally, the new DOJ policy for the first time directs federal prosecutors that good faith security research uh, may not be charged under this statute, but also acknowledges that claiming to be conducting security research is not a free pass to, for those acting in good good faith. I've had an opportunity to review some of the online commentary about the CFAA, um, and it appears to be a mixed bag with some people seeing it, uh, arguing that it is a big change and an important change and others arguing that it is overhyped. Um, let me turn to you first, uh, Professor Kerr, and if you could give a quick overview of the statute, uh, how the Van Buren decision played, and how this DOJ, DOJ guidance uh, is uh, instructive or, or how it pertains to the exercise of prosecutorial authority and discretion in this context. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, first, uh, happy to jo uh, join you, John, and my friend Mike Levy. It's a pleasure to see you as well on the on the Zoom call. Um, uh, great, great to be here. Uh, so, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a 1980s era statute. It's basically the federal computer hacking statute, and the key idea is that it prohibits unauthorized access to a computer, uh, which is divided into access without authorization and exceeding authorized access to a computer. Uh, and it's a very broad statute. So it covers at its broadest point, which is 18 U.S.C. 1030 uh, A2, uh, it prohibits any unauthorized access to a protected computer, which is basically any computer, uh, and thereby obtaining information. And that can include just seeing information. So it's kind of any computer hacking or any unauthorized access uh, at all is potentially, uh, it would seem to be a, a, at least a misdemeanor violation of the statute. And then there are felony enhancements, which make the, the low-level misdemeanor a, a five-year felony, uh, uh, including uh, hacking to obtain money, hacking that's in violation of some other law, like uh, any federal or state crime or tort, um, uh, and, and the like. So, so the basic idea is misdemeanor liability for any sort of unauthorized access, basic kind of trespass, uh, and then felony liability, which can come pretty quickly because the rationales for uh, felony liability, I guess I mentioned, should, should mention one more, if the value of the information is more than uh, uh, $5,000, uh, that can also be a felony enhancement. And then there are a bunch of different provisions in the statute. I just covered Section 1030A2. There's also Section 1030A4, which is the computer fraud statute. It's basically wire fraud plus some unauthorized access. And there's Section 1030A5, which is the computer damage provision. Really two different provisions. One, um, un uh, intentionally damaging a protected computer without authorization, and the other, accessing a computer without authorization and causing damage. Damage defined as impairing the availability or integrity of information. Uh, basically, you know, classic examples would be you know, hacking that takes a network offline or, or causes some sort of financial damage or um, a denial of service attack uh, would be a, an example of that first kind, 1030A5A. So that's basically what the statute's doing. The, the real uncertainty and the reason why this charging policy exists is what does unauthorized access mean? And the reason why it's uncertain is you can come up with a lot of different, different theories for what unauthorized access is. Does that mean unauthorized access in the sense of like hacking in or breaking in? John, you might want to mute yourself. So is is that like hacking, like breaking some sort of technological barrier? Like if I guessed your email account password and read your email, um, where like the, the technological barrier is uh, the password requirement is keeping me out and then I could come in. Um, uh, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that uh, I'm merely told don't do this um, or, you know, like the terms of service, for example, tell me you're not allowed to use this computer for a certain reason. And I do that anyway. Is that unauthorized access? Uh, and last, it might just be there's some sort of computer use that you just you just are supposed to know you're not supposed to do that. Maybe maybe information is available on a URL line that is, is, is hidden in the sense of no one published it and you'd be surprised if you found it. Uh, and and so but you do find it. And then maybe it's, that's unauthorized just because you're just supposed to know that's not for you. Um, so there was all this uncertainty 
leading up to the Van Buren case about what unauthorized access means. And there was an earlier iteration of the DOJ charging policy, which I believe came out in 2014, which was designed to basically deal with this uncertainty. There there'd been a bunch of congressional hearings about like, okay, what does unauthorized access mean? And, and the Justice Department, as a matter of law, was taking the view that unauthorized access could be any of the above. It, DOJ didn't want to, just as a matter of sort of policy position, take a view that the statute couldn't apply to these situations. And members of Congress were pretty concerned about this and their proposals to amend the statute. And basically, there's been a push towards making this more of an, uh, a real hacking statute that is sort of breaking in as compared to visiting a website when the person doesn't want you to visit their public website. Uh, but exactly how to do that has been the uncertainty. So we had this 2014 policy, which was basically like, hey, before you proceed on one of these kind of broader theories of what the statute means, come to the computer crime and intellectual property section, um, which was my former section at the Justice Department, and, and talk to us, <laughs> consult with us. And, and sort of, we'll, we'll, we'll take you through, Mr. AUSA or Miss AUSA, we'll take you through the challenges here and make sure you're aware of what you're about to walk into. Um, that was kind of the gist of the earlier policy. We'll fast forward to... Uh, uh, last year, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court hands down its first case interpreting the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, Van Buren. Uh, and this was a case uh, in which uh, there had been a circuit split on this question of what do you do with employees, in particular government employees with access to sensitive databases that are told as a condition of their employment, like you're not allowed to access this database for personal reasons. You can only access the database for official reasons. Van Buren being a police officer who looks up um, personal information in a computer database only available to law enforcement. And he does this for a few thousand dollars that he's paid by an outsider. Um, uh, so that was not an official reason. It was a personal reason that is to basically accept a bribe. Uh, and he's charged and convicted in the lower court uh, of violating the CFAA. The U.S. Supreme Court then takes this and says, uh, this is not a CFAA violation. Uh, the CFAA does not apply to a situation where someone's been granted access. So um, Van Buren had been given a username and password to access this account. He'd just been told, don't do it for a certain reason, but that don't do it had not interfered with his means of accessing the account. And, and the Van Buren opinion is not a model of clarity. The court is trying to rule narrowly, but um, the suggestion in the cases is that either the statute is, or at least might be limited to only like, if it's not just technological barriers, maybe it's technological barriers and some other limited category of, of cases, but it's not a broad statute where just sort of violating terms of service or violating any sort of words essentially on access would trigger liability. So, so that's the setup. And then the Justice Department amends its policy, its charging policy or consultation policy, which to some extent I gather they kind of had to because some of their guidance was inconsistent with what Van Buren had then held. And so it's a little weird for DOJ to have a policy that's like, you know, here are the cases we'll charge if the US Supreme Court said you can't. Um, and so the real question is what's DOJ's new position in the charging policy? And, and I'll, I'll offer my take and then um, pass it back to you, John. And, and I look forward to hearing uh, Michael's take. But my take is that they they didn't really say very much in the new charging policy. Uh, it's it, it, a lot of the language that they're taking leaves open that they might charge certain cases, tracks the language of Van Buren. 
suggests that they're not going to go beyond current case law, but it's kind of a summary of the uncertainty of current case law and just says, this is what we'll do. And so for the most part, with one exception I'll get to in a second, um, for the most part, they're pretty much just saying they're sticking to current law and it's just an, um, an update of the charging policy to recognize Van Buren and also some of the Ninth Circuit case law, um, uh, like Power Ventures, which dealt with cease and desist letters. Um, uh, you know, if you receive a cease and desist letter, does that mean you can't um, access the site after you've received a cease and desist letter? And do you treat that as differently from the employment policy in Van Buren? This is uncertain, but DOJ basically, as I read the the a charging memo or uh, not charging memo, but but sort of policy memo. Um, they're not really taking a position on this. They're leaving it open. And then the one thing they do that's that's different that raises has, has gotten some attention is there's uh, the policy states that they will decline prosecution in cases involving good faith security research. Uh, that is, you know, if you're like a white hat hacker or you are trying to improve the security of systems and you really genuinely are just acting in good faith to try to improve the security of networks, you won't be charged for this good faith um, security research. You're not trying to break in for bad reasons. You're really just trying to, um, you're really just trying to uh, help uh, uh, essentially. Now, there are two caveats uh, to this. One caveat is that as far as I know, I'm not aware of any case in which the Justice Department has previously charged a good faith security researcher uh, criminally under the CFAA. So there's a part of that, this new policy that says, you know, we're not going to prosecute these cases. It's not that they used to and they're changing their view. They're just making clearer that there's a certain kind of case that they don't plan to bring. So this is maybe more a matter of sort of good relations with the white hat hacker community or something like that. And just sort of giving people sort of an understanding of what actual practices are. They won't bring that kind of case um, rather than necessarily a new like withdrawal of, of, of authority. Um, so that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is that uh, there's a long tradition in uh, CFAA cases and computer hacking cases of uh defendants or suspects insisting that they are white hat hackers. <laughs> Nobody, you know, all, this goes back to actually, I think the first federal computer crime statute was their computer crime prosecution before the CFAA was a case called the United States versus Seedlitz from the fourth circuit. And it was decided in 1978. Uh, and Seedlitz had um, used the username and password of, of his employer after he left the company to go in and he was caught withdraw, uh, downloading a massive database that he was, uh, suspected of then use, going to then try to use to form a competitor company. In fact, kind of what you've seen like many times in the decade since. Uh, and of course, Seedlitz said, no, 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 I wasn't trying to download this. Uh, valuable software to start a, start a competitor business. I just wanted to show my former employer just how bad their computer security is. Um, and I just hadn't gotten to that point where I was, you know, I came forward with all this information. Uh, sure. Uh, so this is a common claim. Uh, and, and the policy is not saying you can't, it's not about whether you claim it, it's whether you, it's true. Um, so I don't think this means uh, that, you know, someone can just kind of come forward and come up with a story about how they're a good faith uh, 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 hacker, um, a white, white hat hacker. Uh, rather, this is sort of really what are they doing? Um, uh, not just kind of what are they what are they saying? So so that's my sense. Essentially, the policy updates the law after Van Buren has this express 
sort of treatment of white hat hackers that weren't prosecuted anyway. And it doesn't so much um, alter practices as much as sort of explain current kind of the, the current DOJ mindset on these questions. Um, and one one last thing uh, I, I think maybe is worth pointing out. Um, before Van Buren, DOJ was prosecuting ballpark like 100 CFAA cases a year, and a decent number of those, I think there was an empirical study by Jonathan Mayer a few years ago, and I think something like half, roughly, of the CFAA prosecutions were brought against insiders like Van Buren. And if if Van Buren then says you can't bring those cases, maybe the total number of like outsider hacker, like quote unquote real like hacking cases uh, would be maybe 50 a year. So we're not talking about a massive number of cases as it is. And I think Van Buren sort of cut back a lot of concerns about liability under the statute being super broad as a whole. So between the charging policy and Van Buren, I think to a significant degree, fears that the Justice Department was going to run amok with the CFAA have been, uh, uh, to some extent, addressed. And and there's going to be there's a lot of civil litigation under uh, over what uh, Van Buren means and how broad the statute goes. But we're not right now, I think, dealing with a lot of concerns about criminal prosecution, at least as much as we used to. Uh, All right, Michael. Sure. Yeah. Professor Levy, uh, yeah. Levy, please, please. Uh, uh, chime in here. I guess, you know, one of the, obviously, uh, Professor Kerr uh, packed a lot in, into that 17 minutes. Um, what I'm, you know, I, I'm obviously interested in your take on it, but what is the implication of the fact that you have a very broad stat, some very broad language in this statute that seems to be constrained by the United States Supreme Court to a degree without certainty as to that constraint, and then obviously then still room for interpretation, as Professor Kerr uh, indicates, necessarily remains open for discussion. How much, how, you know, what does that do? What are the implications of that, both from, from a prosecution perspective, from a private enforcement perspective? And how does that, how do you see that striking uh, the appropriate balance between enforcement interests and privacy uh, and uh, interest? Well, I, I agree mostly with what Professor Kerr said. You know, a lot of this is just updating the guidance and saying, don't charge anything that Van Buren says you can't charge, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing because it's good to have in writing in a policy something that people are going to look at as opposed to letting them go do research on a statute and maybe or maybe not stumble across Van Buren. You know, to some degree, you know, a lot of the, the things they say you shouldn't charge, we're never going to get charged anyway. One of the things listed in there is, you know, putting false information in your dating profile that, you know, you're actually 6'2 when you're really only 5'10. Um, you know, and, and that I think was never going to happen because I don't, you know, from an, from a person, I'm going to talk personal and then institutional points of view, you know, from a personal point of view, you know, prosecutors want to win cases. And, and to win a case, you have to have the jury have, me, have a feeling that there's some kind of moral wrong here. And whenever a defense attorney can pitch a case to a jury saying, you know, you and I have probably done stuff like this, you know, from a prosecutor's point of view, you're likely to lose that case. Uh, I've tried a lot of cases over my career, both as a prosecutor and a defense attorney. I've won them and I've lost them. Winning feels better. And I think that's probably true for most people. So you don't want to lose cases. On an institutional perspective, though, 
most offices, certainly the large offices, require that you get approval from a supervisor, which requires writing a prosecution memorandum that outlines your case, outlines what the, the issues are in the case. So you're going to have some other person taking a look at it. What I think this guidance adds now is not just consultation with CSIPs with the computer crime and intellectual property section, but if you decide if the office that wants to charge the case decides it's not going to do it, you've got to go all the way upstairs to the deputy attorney general and notify the deputy attorney general. And, and John, you were the assistant AG for the criminal division. You know, what are the chances that the deputy attorney general is going to overrule CSIPs and back, you know, some line assistant, you know, in, in the middle of nowhere on one of these things? So there are a number of built in checks that make sure that, you know, this statute is not going to be misused. Now, after the Nuzzle case, which is the Ninth Circuit decision in 2012, which started this chain of uh, unauthorized access does not apply to data you have access to, but get to, but access it for a bad purpose. The Solicitor General issued guidance that basically said, unless you're in the Fifth or Eleventh Circuits, the two circuits that allowed that theory, don't charge that theory. So I'm not sure where the statute statistics came from that Professor Kerr cited, but I'm going to guess that a large number of them were in the in the fifth and eleventh circuits. Um, a couple of things that I um, as to the good faith research thing, I think this is kind of a of an outreach kind of thing. Uh, in the somewhere after around 2012, 2013, Leonard Bailey, who was the um, head of the cybersecurity unit at CSIF started out an outreach to the white hat hacker community. Uh, he showed up at some of their conferences, was greeted with a certain amount of hostility to begin with, but he eventually, you know, got, he got, he got it, won the confidence of enough people that I remember shortly before I retired in 2019 at one of the computer crimes conferences, he brought in a panel of white hat hackers to talk about what they do, why they do it, how they do it, which kind of educated, you know, the, the cybercrime prosecutors across the country about what their purposes are. Um, and, you know, I kind of knew a little bit about this, but there were parts of it that were eye opening and I think very useful to understand. So this, I think, is designed to give some assurance first to tell prosecutors that that's what you think you have. You know, you got troubles, but also to give assurance to the white hat hacker community. Um, you know, there are also assurance to equal rights testers. There's the Sandberg versus Barr case out of the D.C. Uh, uh, D.C. Uh, District Court where some people wanted to do testing on, you know, renting houses, saying they were black or white and seeing what the results were. And we're afraid that in making risk representations about themselves, they could violate the act. Uh, and this guidance that gives, I think, pretty clearly some assurance of those people as well. The two areas I think that are interesting is one for exceeds authorized access. The department, I think, makes pretty clear that they want some kind of technological barrier. Um, because they say that it's got to be it's got to be off limits and delimited by code and not by contract, which me to me means that, you know, God's commandment to Adam and Eve that you can't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge uh, is not going to be a basis for saying unauthorized access uh, under the uh, exceeding authorized access under the act. So they're going to look for it's got to be you access some part of the computer that was separate either by folders or by or by some kind of a code uh, that was clear. It's also clear that there's no automatic withdrawal of 
authorization by misconduct, which was the theory of the disloyal employee. Um, I just, there are a couple of questions I have in my mind. What does it do for the employer, employee who gets fired or quits and gets into the computer before they can delete their credentials? There are a couple of uh, cases out there, one from the Sixth Circuit and one from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, where the courts basically used what I would say is a, um, what are the standards that we all accept? Uh, and if, you know, once you're fired or once you quit, you're not supposed to be coming back onto the property of the company, and you certainly should not be logging back in uh, the computer. So that to me is open. And the other one that is open is one that Professor Kerr referred to, which was what's going to happen? What is going to, is it going to take to say that you're, you've, you don't have access, that your access has been revoked. There are a couple of cases in the Ninth Circuit with cease and desist letters. There's one with a cease and desist letter and an IP block, and it's not clear where that's going. And this guidance doesn't say what the department's going to do. I read it to say, we're going to sit and watch how these cases develop, and then we'll decide what we're going to do. I think that's not a bad idea because they're going to want to not only see what the law is, but also see what the facts of a particular case are. Uh, before they authorize prosecution. Um, so from, you know, as here, two, two law professors uh, here, uh, uh, obviously extolling uh, primarily the virtues of, of this. From a defense standpoint, does, does the state of play of this statute provide fair notice at this point at the margins or, 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 or would a legislative fix um, or increased, uh, you know, and, and, and further statements on the issue help clarify these questions because obviously, uh, not knowing what the law is, notwithstanding uh, language of a statute, generally is considered uh, problematic. You know, I I've looked at some of the proposed amendments around 2014, 2015, and, and I found they were more confusing and gave less guidance. Uh, than the existing law. Um, I, I, I read them and go, I don't know what that means. And I'm the one who's supposed to figure out how to charge it. So I, it would be nice to get more guidance, but I have not seen a draft that makes that, that gives what you want as, as advising a client, yes, you should do this, or no, you shouldn't do this, that does it in a way that makes that clear. Warren, I'm not putting your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've been arguing for narrow interpretations of the CFAA for 20 plus years. So for a long time. And I, 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 my own view is that the CFAA should basically just be limited to the bypassing technological barriers, which could be physical barriers as well, but some, some sort of actual barriers, not just words, um, uh, uh as just an overarching theory of the statute. And I, I think, um, for, for a while there, the courts were embracing very broad interpretations, and I thought the way to get to narrow interpretations was through legislation. And then the courts started adopting more narrow interpretations, and my attitude towards legislation shifted. I started thinking, right, just stop with the legislation. Let the courts play this out because they're getting in, they're getting there. And so Van Buren, I think, is a hugely important narrowing. I don't think it's a narrowing of the statute so much as a correct narrow interpretation. Um, but there's uncertainty there, which lower courts trying to figure out what 
Van Buren means have, to my mind, been uh, interpreting it, uh, interpreting Van Buren appropriately as as imposing a a, a major change. And and a, a key case uh, here, you got to I think mention the Ninth Circuit's ruling in May, the same month that the DOJ guidance comes out in uh, HiQ Labs versus LinkedIn. And this is uh, essentially uh, considering whether visiting a public website is necessarily protected um, when it's a public website. In that case, they had a cease and desist letter issued to HiQ Labs and they tried technological blocks on access, IP blocking and the like, and HiQ Labs just uh, went in a different IP address and ignored the cease and desist letter. And the Ninth Circuit ruled uh, that it's for a public facing website, you can't withdraw authorization. It's sort of once you publish it to the world, you publish it to the world and, and it's authorized to access that. Um, and, and so under that, scraping generally is gonna be not a CFAA violation. Um, and so that I think is just a hugely important step forward. Um, and there are a lot of wrinkles that come along with this and and ways of maybe looking at it differently and the like, but I think I think courts are getting it. Uh, this is you can always say I, they get it when they agree <laughs> agree with you, right? <laughs> but but I think courts are are taking what to my mind is an appropriately narrow interpretation. And the basic idea is like this is a computer hacking statute. If yeah, if someone broke into a computer, if somebody broke into a private place, that should be a crime. It's a computer trespass. But visiting a public website or or violating terms of service, that's just not what the statute. That's that's not culpable conduct that should be a crime in the physical world and shouldn't be either in the digital equivalent. So I think courts are getting there and um, and Congress is likely to stay out of this and just let the courts figure out where they are. Once once the courts come to like a really clear position, you can start thinking about, you know, what what reforms might be needed. But we're not, I think, quite there yet. Um, one last thing I did want to talk about is um I would have expected after Van Buren that the Justice Department would propose some fix for what I think of as the insider problem. That is, especially in the government, sensitive government database context of what do you do with a Van Buren who, you know, granted is being prosecuted for bribery uh, as well. But let's just take the just take a you know typical case that you see often government employee who has access to a sensitive database for personal nefarious reasons, accesses that database to get all sorts of info. And then the government quite appropriately wants to prosecute that person for being a rogue employee who's violating people's privacy and they can fire the person, but it makes a lot of sense that there should also be some sort of criminal liability. The government used to try to do that under the CFAA. And I think the Supreme Court was right to say you can't do that. Um, but there's a good case that there should be a new criminal statute for you know government employees who who access these databases uh for improper reasons and and I've been kind of waiting for DOJ to make that proposal and they haven't at least yet I don't know Michael if you have I thoughts as to why that might be, even if that's appropriate. But. As, as you know, because you, you had me invited to a symposium at, at George Washington about uh, seven years ago uh, on the CFAA, and it's I guess it was its 30th birthday. And I wrote an article uh, called The Proposed Amendment to 1030, The Problem of, of Employee Theft. Um, and at that point, and this was in the, you know, before it was after Nozel and before Van Buren, 
I was arguing we need what I was referring to as an access on the intent to steal statute. That the question shouldn't be, are you authorized to access the data, but what's your intent when you do it? Because I'd go beyond the uh, government employee. I would, you know, once a month, once every two months, I would get a call from either from a business directly or from outside counsel for a business saying, we have this problem. And the problem was, you know, somebody was leaving the company and they were just downloading all kinds of data. Um, and the question, the first question I would ask was, did they download after they left? Because if they downloaded after they left, then it was unauthorized access. If they downloaded before they left, then I couldn't charge anything. Um, and, you know, there were times where maybe it was a theft of a trade secret. Uh, not everything they steal is a, is a trade secret. And the problem with charging trade secret statutes is Sometimes you have to put the whether or not the, the thing they stole is a trade secret. So now the thing that the person wants to keep secret now has to be turned over to experts for the other side who can now defend, well, this isn't a secret. This was obvious. Somebody could have figured this out. So there was no good way to charge the disloyal employee who was stealing stuff on the way out the door. And I, I agree with Lauren. We need we need a fix for that. So I guess let's go back and this I'll date myself. Obviously, we've had a number of famous cases over the years in which in the name of, of doing, uh, for the, doing good for the larger good, there have been thefts of information. Obviously, the Pentagon Papers cases uh, were important cases uh, back in the 70s on that point. Since that time, obviously, there are, are certainly occasions more recently in which individuals or groups have accessed information available in various databases. Sometimes, you know, obviously we don't necessarily always know exactly how they got it, but it seems pretty clear that they didn't have official authorization or if they got authorization, it was through means of someone, uh, an insider who allowed them or passed on information that they had obtained and passed on. Are there, are there particular gaps um, and and obviously one one person's um, you know terrorism sometimes turns out to be another uh, the other side's freedom fighter. In this kind of context, are there gaps? Are there are there uh, vulnerabilities here from an insider threat standpoint that that can be addressed? Whether it is is within the rubric of 1030 or with a neighboring companion kind of statute statute that um, would address that in the in this larger context of the access of, of, say, government information or inside information that poses a national security loss, um, even if it's not, quote, secret information, but is nonetheless uh, uh, government information that we prefer our, our enemies not to have? Um, so I can I can offer some thoughts. I mean, the, the basic approach of current law has been for kind of what I think of as information misuse statutes or sort of statutes which are about uh, sharing information you're not supposed to share, distributing information you're not supposed to distribute, uh, to really be focused on specific kinds of information, sensitive information. So it would be classified information and national security information. It could be misusing, there's a misdemeanor uh, statute on uh, misusing the tax database, for example. Um, and then in the Closely related to CFAA setting, you'll have theft of trade secrets. Uh, so, if the information that the employee takes is a trade secret, that would be uh, that would be one situation where the insider could be prosecuted for 
using the trade secret without uh, authorization from the trade secret owner. Um, and so the I think the challenge of the CFAA and the challenge of this area is that there's no general information misuse statute, sort of you did something with some information that someone didn't want, whatever the information is. And, and the CFAA basically created the possibility of that for all information on a computer period. Um, and then there was no narrow way to do it. So I think people kind of, like, oh, well, you know, intuitively, that seems like an appropriate thing to prosecute if it's particularly sensitive information. But that was not a category under the CFAA, at least as to misdemeanor liability. So, so I think... Um, I think the way forward is for Congress to think carefully about what are the different kinds of information and what are the different ways that information can be misused and to have more, make sure there's coverage of all the different particular sensitive kinds of information without focusing, without having a statute that inadvertently in this context uh, applies to all information sort of categorically, no matter whether it's sensitive or non-sensitive. And, you know, under the original, uh, under the broad interpretation of the CFAA that that um, the Justice Department sometimes took, or at least didn't back off of was, you know, any term of service violation, even if it's include completely frivolous and silly, um, still technically that was an unauthorized access. So, so I think the goal should be really to focus on the sensitive kinds of information rather than the fact that some information was obtained that someone didn't want to have happen. You're muted, John. Let's let's turn to one one aspect of it, uh, and that is the private enforcement side of of this. Obviously, this DOJ guidance only applies to criminal prosecutors, um, but uh, of course, civil causes of action, and uh, while a, a civil civil enforcement doesn't uh, take away one's liberty, it can be exceedingly expensive. Um, uh, and, and so how, how, how is that, uh, do you think if, if it is influenced, um, uh, by this DOJ guidance, if it is at all, does, does this help the courts, um, also, uh, uh, construe properly the language in the statute in the context of private civil enforcement? And then secondly, how does it deal with any of the sort of copycat baby statutes, if you will, at the state level that may be uh, seeking to criminalize conduct uh, similar to what is found in the federal statute? You know, on the, at least on the civil side, if, certainly if I were defending someone, I would cite this, if, and if I felt this was outside the realm of what the department would bring, I would certainly bring this to the attention of the court because the statute prohibits certain conduct. and give civil as well as criminal remedies. So there ought to be some uniformity in interpretation of the law and looking at what the Department of Justice uh, says, you know, prosecutors ought to follow. I think it can be persuasive. Uh, certainly it's an argument I would I would raise if I were defending someone. Um, yeah, how far that goes, you know, <laughs> I don't know how successful you'll be. You know, one of the things that I, I remarked on you know, when I first started working in this area was, you know, so many of the, the early CFAA cases are were civil cases and they gave incredibly broad interpretations to the law without any thought that this was a criminal statute. And I compared that to the statute I, I started to look at very early in my career in the 1980s, which was the RICO statute, which the government had used 
uh, and you know prosecuted very successfully. And then prosecutors went out into private practice and they said hey, to their partners and associates, hey, you know, there's a statute in Title 18 that's really cool that we can use. And the courts hated civil RICO and they did everything they could to cut it apart. And, you know, from my point of view as a prosecutor, I didn't like them doing that because they were going to tie my hands in some some ways. I saw the opposite on this side of, of courts giving incredibly broad interpretations. And now this you know parade of horribles of what can happen with a statute. Uh, so I think it'd be useful if there's some convergence in the interpretation of both civil and criminal. In terms of guidance for the states, you know, I, again, it's persuasive, but it, there's nothing that says that the states have to follow this guidance. And there are states like California that do have a, the equivalent of an, of an access on intent to steal statute. So it will, you know, they have a, a, a remedy for the disloyal employee. Lauren, you indicated that the number of cases brought annually by the Department of Justice in this context is relatively small by comparison. Obviously, the mere fact, I'm sure for the 50 defendants, it didn't seem so small. Do you have any sense of, of how this compares to enforcement at the state level for similarly situated statutes? Is it even less common there, more common? What, what, what do you know about that? Yeah, even less common at the state level. I mean, it's kind of remarkable to look at the overall picture of kind of unauthorized access statute enforcement. You've got um, a very small number of federal criminal prosecutions. You've got almost zero state <laughs> criminal prosecutions, an incredibly small number. In fact, the, the California equivalent of the unauthorized access statute, sort of CFA equivalent, uh, California Penal Code Section 502, has been mostly interpreted in the context of Ninth Circuit case law. So on the federal side. Um, so you just, you this just, you don't have that many. Especially part of it is it's very difficult at the state level to investigate like online hacking. Um, how do you gather the evidence state to state internationally? I mean, it requires a lot of resources and the states usually don't have it. So so you've got a lot of state statutes where there's um, zero cases reported or maybe like, you know, one or two cases reported, not just not many. And sometimes they follow the federal statute. Sometimes they don't. I mean, I think it's interesting that the Van Buren decision uh, from the U.S. Supreme Court interpreting the CFAA is written in very close textual language. Um, it's, you know, it's like there's like pages and pages of like focusing on the word so in the definition of exceeding authorized access. And and if you if you read Van Buren and you've got a different statute that has different words at the state level, I can imagine you just say, well, there's really nothing in this for me here because uh, it's just so specific, the federal statute. Um, so it just hasn't come up as much at the state level. And, and I do think, you know, the real action right now is going to be federal civil cases, uh, the context of business to business litigation in particular, which which is in a lot of ways, as Michael pointed out, is kind of the reason this is the problem <laughs> in the beginning, because you get totally different sort of mindsets in a business to business litigation cases you would get in a criminal case. And and I think actually this is to be a little bit academic. Um, I think the whole idea of having civil remedies under the CFAA was just a mistake. Um, I think the rationale going back to the early 1990s, as I understood it, was um, 
the people in the Justice Department thinking, well, gosh, computer hacking is becoming so common. That means there's going to be so many cases. There's no way that the U.S. Department of Justice is going to be able to prosecute all of these CFAA cases. They're going to overrun the Justice Department. We need to allow for civil enforcement, too, so the victims of hacking can sue the hackers. Um, and and it, it turned out like that was just not a problem. We never got more than about 100 prosecutions a year. Incredible amounts of hacking is just so hard to catch the hackers. You don't actually have the problem. Uh, and then, um, and then, you know, hackers themselves are going to be judgment proof uh, most of the time, even if they're caught and DOJ declines. So it, it just, I think the whole idea of having civil liability together with criminal liability, as in the RICO setting, it just causes it just the settings are so different. Judges instincts are so different. And you end up with weird interpretations of the law that get misused in the opposite context. And so I, I, I think it hasn't worked out all that well. But right now, it's the civil cases that are really where the action is. John, the only thing I, I jumped in on the state is the end. And you were, you know, you were out in western Oklahoma. Once you got out, I mean, how many people, how many detectives in Oklahoma City were, were able to do computer investigations? And once you got outside of Oklahoma City, they were basically police officers are basically peace officers. You may have one or two detectives. You probably rely on the state police to do a lot of patrolling. Uh, so there's just not the expertise on the state level to handle these things. Yeah, ironically, uh, uh, Michael, I actually had a case after I left uh, the department in which I pitched on behalf of an honor, uh, basically a theft of of inside information by an insider who had left and taken a bunch of information. I pitched it to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, they were concerned about un unauthorized access uh, language uh, in the Tenth Circuit and making bad case law. They declined to pursue the matter. I handed my investigative file uh, on behalf of my client to the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office, and they prosecuted and, and successfully convicted <laughs> the defendant. But... Uh, but my point being is, is obviously we handed them that, you know, uh, it took outsiders in this case, the victim uh, company uh, uh, investigation that had the means to do that investigation to present the evidence uh, that that allowed allowed the matter to be brought. So it can be ha it, it can be done. One of the um, criticisms I hear about the current uh, uh, guidance is as well that it can be undone. And um, and what's and, and what's the the chance, you know, and I guess the question is, is what is really the chances of that, uh, given uh, the underlying case law uh, that is developed in the area? Is this an area where in a new administration, uh, it can be undone in a way that that essentially returns things to the past? Or um, is this guidance essentially really Billy, merely stating what is effectively the floor right now, given uh, the, the more recent court decisions. You know, this is, you know, administrations change and policies change, but this is not really a much of a political issue between Democrats and Republicans. And this kind of states, this is where the law is today. So, you know, I don't see in three years if we get a change of administration, big changes to this. And the only way I see changes coming is, is whole new sets of facts developing uh, that we just don't anticipate today. And with computers, that can certainly happen. And then there may be need, a need to revise the guidance to deal with what the situation is on the ground in 2026 or 2030, whenever that happens to be. You know, another area um, 
that that I think of late has gotten a lot of media scrutiny is uh, various times in which informa- government information has evidently made its way into the public domain. Um, we've seen reports in the media of of sensitive tax information that's provided about certain high uh, high earners or wealthy individuals in the United States that somehow made its way into the public domain. Um, obviously, the the promulgators of that information uh, certainly uh, come at it presumably with a motive that they believe this is information that is is worthy of the, of the public knowing about. But our tax laws uh, would seemingly say otherwise. Um, likewise, uh, we know that uh, in any political season, which seems to be uh, every day of the week, all year long in any given year, um, there seems to be a great deal of effort to dig up information on, politi- by, on your political opponent, depending. Um, and some of that information would seemingly not come from the word of mouth, um, but rather come from, you know, obtaining information that may have been obtained through some person who may have had technically authorized access, meaning that they had credentials um, or legal ability uh, to authorize uh, the information where it was found, but then have passed it on, obviously, to someone who has no, should have no right to that information. And, and clearly, is, is that a vulnerability? Is that a gap uh, if, uh, that, that exists uh, as a result of uh, Van Buren, and if so, are there other means that that federal law enforcement authorities have to shore that uh, to to fill that gap with with the use of other statutes? Um, how do you how do you see those kinds of scenarios that get reported publicly uh, in terms of what the options are? You know, with with the with the, the scenario, the first scenario you posed, the tax returns of somebody. I mean, the, the tax laws are pretty clear that that releasing them is a criminal violation and it doesn't matter. In fact, it's directed at people who have authorized access to the information. Uh, the hard part is going back and figuring out who got it. Um, and, you know, it, it gets out in the press and the pre- you know, the newspaper reporter is going to claim, uh, you know, that he did that it's privileged and he doesn't have to disclose his sources. You've got a Supreme Court decision in the wiretap statute, uh, Bartnicki versus Vopper, which says, you know, First Amendment protects certain things, you know, even if they were obtained illegally, uh, if they're of great public interest. So th- there are going to be some problems in dealing with this. Um, you know, there are other areas where people get embarrassing information on people and, and you know, an opposition research. And, and the question is, you know, do they just find an old YouTube video somewhere that they now drag up? You know, the thing that uh, the Daily Show used to do all the time, picking up newsreels from 15 years ago and playing it to, to repeat, you know, to embarrass some politician with words they said 15 years ago that are completely different from what they say today. I mean, that's that's fair game. But if you get into somebody's private account, um, it's probably not. Or, or, in, or Professor Kerr, how do you see how do you see that uh, the this intersection between the First Amendment and uh, this unauthorized access and use of this information, recognizing that obviously um, we live in a, a free and open society to some degree, but where there is obviously a need sometimes to protect information uh, for legitimate uh, legitimate reasons. 
Yeah, I agree uh, completely with Michael's take on the law. The, the reporters themselves are going to have the First Amendment claim under Bartnicki, and then the person who engaged in the wrongdoing initially is probably going to protect themselves from uh, from from being uh, observed. And it all just depends on how clever they were in hiding their tracks and how serious the investigation is. And you see this. You see this across the board. I mean, an example of this same issue is like, you know, the the, the leak of the Dobbs opinion, um, you know, who someone leaked the Dobbs opinion. Who was it? Well, there's only a certain number of people that might have had access to it. But how how much how many resources are actually being spent trying to figure this out? Are they pulling phone records? Are they interviewing people? Are they interrogating people down at the police station? I mean, if you really, really want to know and you've got a limited set of suspects, you could make it a top priority and maybe have a chance at it. But if folks are hiding their tracks relatively well and the investigation is not um, super uh, intensive, a lot of times you're just never going to know who who did it. So so I think this is a this is not a criminal law, substantive law problem as much as it's an, an enforcement challenge and an evidence gathering problem. Um, and so that that I think of is usually just a byproduct of um, how clever was the original wrongdoing and hiding his or her tracks and what resources is the government bringing to bear in an investigation? It's not it's not a question of substantive law um, uh, like the CFAA. Well, let me uh, let me remind the audience uh, that if they have questions, certainly you can submit them through the chat box. Um, um, I think I've tried to uh, address the uh, one question that was posed uh, in the chat box, which is obviously talking, asking the question about sensitive in info and and whether that may include, as this writer said, sins of politicians that may hurt them politically. Um, uh, if there are other questions, please submit them. Um, uh, we'll be happy to try to uh, get to them uh, here during our remaining uh, few minutes. Let me, I guess, go now to to where this is going. This this statute uh, was passed, you know, back at a time when the internet uh, didn't really uh, exist, um, and uh, the kind of information that we're used to uh, having access to now. Uh, was just uh, was just different. Um, it's been amended a number of times, and and there have been a, a number of additions and, and changes. But where do you see this going? I mean, as as you as you prognosticate, not just in terms of a legal development, but in in terms of thinking about how information and information is is shared and gathered. Um, are we in a fairly stable environment in which the existing statute, uh, such as it is, notwithstanding um, it's uh, it, its weaknesses and strengths is is, is enough, um, or can we anticipate technological change um, in the offing that is is likely to mean that Congress should act, even though right now there may not be the kind of gap or there may not be an easy solution. Um, I guess I'll 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 take that. I think. Um... I think we're at a point now, we're getting to the point where the statute is in the ballpark of okay. <laughs> there are lots of ways I would fiddle with it if I had, you know, the pen and could do it. But uh, the huge problem that the CFAA might sort of make everyone in the United States who goes online a criminal um, uh, by, you know, by, because the statute was drafted so broadly, I think we're past that now. Um, and so we're, we're, 
and the, and the number of cases brought is so small that I think really, you know, it's the enforcement that's going to make a bigger difference going forward. And think about if you connect a computer to the Internet, it's going to start getting attacked like right away. Uh, and so the the problem with you, know, we have bad security and the, the statute is the statute punishing breaches of bad security is in some sense only a small part of our worries. We need to have better security uh, and block the intrusions rather than think about is the law there in the right place for when somebody does violate security, breach these security protocols and and gain access to information. So, so it's going to be, I think, enforcement and the security picture generally rather than the CFAA that probably makes the biggest difference going forward. John, the only thing I'd add is, is, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have any of these social media things. And that certainly has changed the whole paradigm of what we're litigating. And who knows what what's going to come down the road next week that suddenly become, you know, the big thing of the 2020s. Uh, that may change, you know, what, how we look at computer hacking. So it's it's kind of hard to adjust a statute to technology when we haven't caught up to the technology from 20 years ago. And it's going to change, you know, next week. But I, I agree with Oren that, you know, criminal law is like the, the boy with his finger in the dike. And if we don't figure out how ways to shore up the dike, but better computer security and keeping hackers out of computers, then, you know, there's no hope. Well, I I uh, I want to thank both of you. We uh, I think we've covered the subject uh, fairly well in the time that we have. Um, uh, I'm not seeing other questions coming across, but I'll, I'll check with our, our organizer here, uh, Shayla. Is there any any other questions that we missed? Um, otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, I want to thank uh, you. Uh, uh, Professor Levy and you, Professor Kerr, for for what I think was a very interesting discussion uh, on this statute and really appreciate you giving the time and your expertise uh, to this teleform today. Absolutely. I'll second that on behalf of the Federalist Society. I thank our experts for the benefit of the valuable time and our audience for joining and participating. Uh, we welcome listener feedback at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.